The Leap Foundation proudly presents the Meet the Mentor podcast with Dr. Bill Dorfman. Dr. Bill is a TV host, New York Times bestselling author, two-time Guinness World Book record holder, fitness guru, celebrity cosmetic dentist, and philanthropist who founded the Leap Foundation. Here's Dr. Bill. Hey, Dr. Bill here. So meet the mentor exploding. You know, we're in the top two and a half percent of all podcasts. We have our dates for Leap 2022. It will be July 17th to the 23rd at UCLA again. Now, here's the UCLA thing. If you want to come to Leap, you got to be vaccinated. Not our law, their law. However, if you don't want to get vaccinated and you still want to attend Leap, come virtually. Everybody can do that. But it's going to be awesome. I'm hoping we'll have back our 450 students live and thousands and thousands and thousands of you guys virtually. We have a great lineup. I know for sure we're going to have Richard Branson. We're going to have Paula Abdul. Uh, I'm working on Usher. He said yes, but you never know with him because he's so busy. Um, And I'm also working on getting Katie Perry, hopefully. Um, So it should be a really, really awesome one. Uh, Why do we do this Meet the Mentor? We do it because Leap Week is one week where we give you an action-packed experience, but we don't want to just kind of forget about you during the year. So we bring on these great mentors who share stories about their success and their career in order to kind of inspire you and, and help you meet great mentors. We always say the fastest way to success is through a great mentor. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce you to our mentor for today. This is a man who's been at LEAP three or four times. Uh, I've known him through the gym, actually, for probably uh, at least 15 years. He's been working at the Grammys for 20 years, so I'm going to give you a quick introduction. Brandon Chapman is the Grammys executive in charge of production and oversees a massive celebration that is Grammy week. He typically orchestrates 16 events over the course of the week with over 10,000 people hired, 160,000 pounds of gear flown in for the telecast, and much more. As COO for the Recording Academy, he's responsible for the artist relationships, um, marketing and business development, and production and event operations. In his role, Chapman oversees the slate of telecast specials and strategic growth of the Academy's entertainment offerings. He's also earned a bachelor's degree in business administration and graduated summa cum laude from USC with dual emphasis on entrepreneurship and marketing. Brandon, thank you so much for spending time with us. And let's just kind of dive into it. At what point in your life did you decide that you really want to go into entertainment? Well, first of all, I want to say I'm thrilled that although they're all multi-hyphenates, it's exciting that all your guest speakers that you're talking to for Leap are all in the music business. So thrilled with that, first and foremost. Um, and it was it was reasons like that that really brought me out of a small town in Colorado and to the University of Southern California. I wanted to move to Los Angeles because I wanted to be in entertainment. I was influenced by people. You mentioned Paula Abdul. That was part of my generation. I was part of the MTV generation and just fell in love with with what 
the, the type of content that was coming out of Hollywood. And so I knew I wanted to break away from Colorado. I applied to go to USC, got in because ultimately I knew I wanted to be in the entertainment business. And for me, LA was a better option than some of the other major entertainment capitals. So um, that's what brought me here. And from there, I just parlayed that into a couple internships and uh, introductory jobs at uh, in a few different ways that ultimately ended me at the Recording Academy. You know, uh, one of the things I really have to give USC credit for, and I hate doing this because I went to UCLA, so I never ever like to say good stuff about USC, but I have to say their networking is amazing. You know, when you graduate from UCLA, the chances of another UCLA alum, you know, helping you are kind of small, but USC has this great network. So as soon as you graduate from USC, Tell me where you went first. Well, like I said, I got my business degree. So ultimately, my job was really more in the business realm than the entertainment realm. I worked for a very large consulting company at the time. It was called Anderson Consulting, later became Accenture. And I was put in the entertainment division. That was one of the reasons I applied there. So I got a vast amount of experience in consulting on entertainment companies like Sony or um, you know BMG Music. Uh, Paramount was one of our clients. And so I got to see different facets of of the business by coming in and basically consulting on how to improve some of their business strategies and their business processes. So my first step right out of college was less on the creative side, more on the business side. But like, you know, some of the students that are watching this are as young as 15. Explain to me in really simple terms what you were actually doing for these companies. Uh, in terms of the consulting business? Yeah. So Typically, we would get hired as specialists in evaluating and advising how to make a specific business function better or more competitive. So as an example, I worked on one client where we were hired because their time to market, and again, you got to remember that the year this was, their time to market their VHS or DVDs was much longer than their competitors. They couldn't figure out how to tighten the cycle up from taking a product that was produced theatrically released in the theaters and then getting it out to market in a wide scale marketing campaign and creating a success on their DVDs and uh, VHS. So that's one example of a project we worked so on. How'd you solve, how'd you solve that? I mean, there's so the working with these large consulting companies, they have processes very specifically in place that make them successful at coming in and advising. So first and foremost, you run analytics. You literally come in and evaluate their processes, take a look at it, and then you do a market survey. So you start looking at their competitors, their competitors as best you can, understanding how are they doing things differently? How are they handling their marketing campaigns? When do they start uh, implementing the teams in this example? of the DVD or the, the worldwide marketing teams in the theatrical production. And what we found is some of the competitors were using those teams as soon as a contract was signed. As soon as they greenlit a production, they really started looking at the entire scale of the project through DVD distribution, as opposed to what the client that we were working on did, which was basically go through the theatrical distribution, then trigger the next step, which was the DVD or uh, you know home video release. Cool. All right. So at your your first job, you were there for how long now? Uh, let's see. I would have been there for about three and a half years. And then what happened next? So because of my consulting experience, I learned how to write business plans very well. And so one of the people I was introduced to 
at one of my consulting jobs was a um, film producer and he wanted to launch a television production arm within his own company. And so he reached out to me and said, would you mind writing a business plan? I did in fact write that business plan and he liked it so much. He said, would you mind coming on board with me and helping me launch this division of my company? So ultimately at a relatively young age, um, because it was a startup within a bigger company, but it still was a startup in terms of the division, I was provided with a really good title because he couldn't salary me too well. So luckily, by the age of 27, I believe I had the vice president title because the salary was a little bit lower and I was taking a gamble and a risk at coming into a company like that. That risk paid off because it, it did add a vice president to a production title on my resume that ultimately parlayed me into the next company, which was I got recruited by the Recording Academy. While I was at that last company that I just referred to, um, when we launched the television division, we ended up becoming very successful, not in scripted, but in non-scripted. So not necessarily what reality has become now, but reality TV back then that we specialized on were music countdown shows and what we just coined concerts for cable. So we would go in and film concerts live concerts or tours and turn them into one or two hour television production specials and sell them to cable. Well, that gave you a perfect background for going to the Recording Academy, right? It really did. It launched my career in live production, 100%. It's where I got very good and actually most of my motivation and energy and excitement about my job does come from the concept of a live production. So right now, give us a really kind of broad description of what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. I know Grammy week is crazy because I've actually been there and seen you and you're like flying around with like a chicken without a head and you've got like a gazillion people to orchestrate, but what's the real function of your job? Well, it changed as of August of last year. So prior to August of last year, I was basically responsible for every level of production and entertainment content that came out of the Recording Academy. So what that means is when we were planning a telecast or when we were planning a big live event, like I co-produce an event with Clive Davis the night before the Grammy Awards, then on the Grammy Awards, we have a red carpet special. We have the red carpet media experience. We have the premiere ceremony where we give away a number of our awards. We have the actual telecast and then the after party, which is a party of about 6,000 people that I have to produce at a convention center. It's gotten so big, we can't fit it into a, uh, a ballroom. So that's just two days of events. And what my responsibility was, was overseeing the budget, the planning, and ultimately the execution of those events to make sure when you open the doors to the events or when you turn on the lights and the cameras, that everything goes flawlessly because you only have one chance to get it right. There is no retake in live television. You have to get it right. It's the same thing when you open doors to your events, to your guests. Once they walk in, the event is live. You can't shut them out and say, hold on, we need 10 more minutes. Everybody has an expectation of when they're supposed to be there. And CBS has an expectation that we deliver a three and a half hour telecast, not three hours and 26 minutes or three hours and 35, but uh, that, that explains the stress of live production and why planning and I guess uh, process and ultimately execution has to be done very well because unlike television, scripted television or movies, if somebody messes up a take, you can take it over. We don't have that luxury. You know, so just so people understand, when you watch you know, shows like, like Oprah or, you know, my show, The Doctor, that, that's live to tape. So you basically have the opportunity 
if there's a problem to redo it. When they do the Grammys, it is live, live. And I'm going to share a little anecdotal story because I was with you the night that this happened. Um, so I, I remember how incredibly nervous you were when Pink was performing. Now, not only did Pink refuse to wear safety cables when she went up in the air and was twirling, which is already kind of scary because if Pink fell, not only does Pink die, but the person below dies. But the other part that was really scary was the fact that she didn't have an ancillary microphone. You know, a lot of the artists will have, you know, microphones, you know, where if one of them isn't working, they've got another one hitting their body. She was holding this microphone, spinning around in the air, then being lowered into a tank of water where the microphone was being put on the side of the tank. She's getting dunked in the tank, getting all wet. Then she has to get the microphone again. Like if that dropped or what, you had like literally no backup. And I think that was probably one of the most nerve wracking things as a producer that you are to, to be watching this, right? Oh, yeah. We definitely have every year there seems to be something that we can focus on for a stressful moment. But in that one, I had to walk our insurance company who underwrites the production. I had to walk them through all of the rehearsal, all the cabling, everything that we had to do in terms of the motors, um, because, you know, it was a highly insurable and a highly risky moment to put on live TV. She's a professional aerialist. She really has done similar things in concert. So the nervous energy for almost every Everybody was around the fact that she was going to be 50 to 60 feet in the air, unsupported other than the silks that she was in. So she didn't have this, you know, the additional cables for safety. That's what everybody else was worried about. I had seen her in concert. I know what she can accomplish. We've all seen her death death-defying performances. Ultimately, what I was most worried about is if one of her other aerialists or the other people she was performing with didn't get the mic back into her hand in time when we started spinning her because the, the motors are on timers. And once we got her up into the air, if she dropped the mic or anything, we would have had a minute of dead air on CBS and that would have been horrific. So like we said, she's a professional. She knows what she's doing. There were no problems, but um, yeah, to take a piece of electronic equipment out of her hand so we can dip her in the air and then make sure the timing was perfect that we didn't lose anything was um very nerve-wracking for me i never worried she was going to fall i worried about all the logistics around the performance and having dead air on cbs for a minute yeah I, and i have to say i mean i never miss the grammys and you guys have created some of the most magical moments i've ever seen on tv i mean um i'm very you know i'm good friends with lewis horvitz who um directs the show and uh you know, the, I remember watching Demi Lovato come and perform. I mean, you know, and the audience didn't know that she literally had OD'd, you know, eight months prior to that and almost didn't make it. And then, you know, had not even be, been out in the public once. And the first time the public saw her since this horrific event in her life was on the stage at the Grammys. And I mean, and I got the opportunity to watch him like direct that. And it was so incredibly powerful and beautiful. You know, it, there's little things that you don't in the audience think about, but you know, a lot of the productions, Taylor Swift and all this, you see cameras sweeping across in there, but her thing was so powerful. He just stayed on her face 
the whole time because that's all you needed. And her voice is so incredible. And honestly, it was one of the most magical, magical performances I've ever seen. One of my favorite parts about the Grammys is whenever you talk to somebody after, everybody has a different favorite performance. So it's great. We try to put, you know, 18 to 22 mini concerts on stage. We change the look, we change the lighting, we change the set pieces. We try to make every performance look unique. And um, the beauty of it is everybody walks away getting to know a new artist that they never had seen or been exposed to before and typically walk away with different favorites. Yeah. And I'll tell you something what the audience because I've been there several times, so I watch it. What the audience at home doesn't realize is you really have like four or five different stages. So you're watching a performance while they're setting up another stage so they can just cut from one to the one. And as soon as that performance is done, they strike that down. They rebuild a whole nother thing. So in order to make that all happen and seem flawless and do it live, I mean, hats off to you. It's, it's literally incredible. Well, they always say with a magician, they, they want you to look at this hand. So you're not paying attention to what that hand's doing or, you know, same thing with a, a, a pickpocket. So that's what we have to do. We, we focus cameras and audience attention over on stage right while we're resetting stage left. If we use the entire stage, you know, open it up for a big performance. The next performance is almost guaranteed to be on our satellite stage right in the middle of the audience. It's, um, it's an orchestration for sure. It's funny. <laughs> I was listening to an interview with Louis Capelli who's amazing i mean i love he's like my favorite artist right now and people at home don't realize that the reason why you never see empty seats in the audience is because you guys have seat fillers so as soon as lewis gets called up to get his award somebody runs in and sits in his seat you know so when you pan the audience there aren't all these empty seats right so he goes up and he gets his award i heard him say this on an interview the other day he comes back down and there's a girl sitting in a seat he says you know, can I have my seat back? She's like, no. He's like, no, I just won this award. I want to see the rest of the show. She didn't know who he was. And so she wasn't going to give him the seat. She's like, no, go find another seat. He goes, no, this is my seat. Yeah, we, I mean, most of those that we use on our show, all the professional award shows use them. And so you don't, it doesn't look good to have open cameras on seats. It doesn't look good to have people eating popcorn and drinking soda. So most of the shows don't allow um, food and beverage in the seats. But uh, they are, you know, to get on our show, you have to earn your chops on other shows to be a seat filler. But um, that, I actually had heard that story and that does kind of crack me up because normally they're very attuned to where they're sitting, who's coming back to their seats. Um, that must have been one where either he didn't, you know, she didn't know who he went on stage or who he was when he came back. She thought he was another seat filler. I'm not sure what happened there, but uh, I've heard that story and I think he got a kick out of it. That's the funny thing. Yeah. Now he's hilarious. So in your 20 years of doing the Grammys, what would you say is maybe one of your like crowning moments? Well, oh gosh, there's been so many. If you're asking about my favorite performances, that's different from when I walked away with an, an unbelievable sense of pride on something that I was very hands-on or I produced. But That's um, what I want to hear. So I would have to say the way we handled both Whitney Houston and Kobe Bryant passing away within 24 hours of our show, in my opinion, is what really proves to me I work with the best in the business. 
because we had to rewrite an entire script. We had to reproduce segments. We had to reach out and get performers and band members who were willing to perform something or modify their performance in order to pay tribute to these artists. So we lost Whitney Houston the, the day before the Grammys. And once we got to air, we had completely changed the opening. LL Cool J wanted to open with something very appropriate. So we changed the entire script. The script team was up all night. We reproduced uh, a couple of the segments to make them a little bit shorter so we could create a tribute moment and have Jennifer Hudson perform. So um, she performed I Will Always Love You. It was poignant. It was special. I think it paid tribute to an artist that was, you know, literally one of the generation's most powerful voices. So I was really thrilled with how we handled that. And when we were in the home of Kobe Bryant in Staples Center and we lost him that day, there was such a strange sense that came over the venue because everybody who works in the venue works the sports games too. Many of the people we were working with, the general manager who I work with very closely to produce our show and handle all the logistics was one of Kobe's personal friends. So for us to be able to toggle and create an appropriate moment to kind of, I guess, pay tribute to a, to something that was happening in the nation's consciousness that day. Um, those are the moments where I'm most proud because it's not easy to change something within 24 hours of our show. It's very challenging. You've already shot it. You've already rehearsed it. You've already had the director determine certain lighting looks, certain angles that he wants to. So for us to have to move performances around, shorten them, change the script within 24 hours is really challenging. So that's when I feel the biggest sense of pride is, okay, we did this right. We were able to accomplish it and pay tribute to these individuals who um, were a huge loss for the nation, the world. Yeah, I, I agree that that was spectacular how you dealt with that. Um, what what would you say was your favorite, favorite performance? It's really hard. I mean, you mentioned Pink, which was mind blowing because she was really known at the time as a pop artist and as a kind of rock and hard artist and heavy you know production value and we asked her to do a ballad and it was one of the most beautiful performances that's ever been delivered because she she really re-identified herself as a vocalist and somebody that deserves respect not just as a performer but as an actual artist and and I think we helped her achieve that so I'm really proud of that moment but um I one of my earliest I think it was my first show. I walked into Staples Center during the rehearsal of um, Lady Marmalade, which had, you know, Little Kim, Christina Aguilera, Maya, and who am I missing? Um, and one other, sorry, I'm just missing Christina. Oh, and Pink. So they did the performance and then Missy Elliott was a featured performer because she's the one that produced that, that, that song um, for the movie. And then we had um, Patti LaBelle, who was the original creator of Lady Marmalade, come out and kind of conclude the number. It was a huge set. The production value was incredible. We spent a ton of money on the set. But ultimately, it was to just walk in and see that set and see six performers on stage that were all at the top of their game right then and there. And I have to say, like Christina, can belt out any number she is incredible vocally it was like mind-blowing and so like I said um you know I, I get to deal with some pretty unbelievable talent in my career and and in my day-to-day -day job and there are moments when you know even I still just drop my jaw and just think I can't believe I get to witness this moment and how powerful it is, how these vocals have come together with the lighting, the set, the stage. And, and you mentioned the Demi Lovato moment. That was one. And if you're talking about the moment where she was wearing the big white dress right in the middle yes. of 
arena. We did something a couple of years earlier with Adele right on that same stage. And those okay. are the moments you can hear a pin drop in the arena. They have everybody's attention so wrapped to them that that's when you realize like, I'm, I never want to be on camera. This even makes me uncomfortable. I like to be behind camera and like to produce things. But when you see somebody that's so talented that they can command 20, you know, 12,500 people's attention and they're focused on every moment, every note, every lyric, I, I think it's pretty spectacular. I agree. I, I mean, I think um, the, the, the pink performance, Demi's performance, and then, my personal favorite, and only because I'm a, a, a very dear friend of his, was the recent um, appearance of Usher uh, doing Prince. Yeah, we've had him do Prince, and he did James, James Brown years ago um, as well, and that was another incredible one to see him dancing. And, and I mean, how many artists could do that? Like, you know, very, very few. And, you know, what people don't also realize there are a lot of very popular artists that are great recording artists, but when you hear these people live, it's, it's not the same, you know? I mean, and, you know, when you guys are, are recording these people at the Grammys, you're not altering their voice. Like this, you know, there is only one pink. There is only one Lady Gaga. I mean, there are some of these artists can sing, you know, live and sound just as, and Demi Lovato, I think the recording she did live there was actually even better than the recorded one that she published. It just had so much more emotion. Yeah, there, I mean, there's amazing talent. I mean, when we put, we put Lady Gaga with Elton John one time, a couple years later, we put, I saw it. we put Miley with Elton. It was an incredible performance. Miley has never sounded better in my opinion. It was just amazing. And then when we opened the show years ago with Prince and Beyonce, I mean, you, Again, I really am just very lucky and blessed to be able to deal with this level of talent. I say every once in a while, like, I think I'm good at my job, but I don't have talent. These people have true talent. Like, they, they, it comes across, and it's amazing. All right, so getting to your job. If I'm a student and I want to have your job one day, tell me what I would need to do to really best prepare myself to enter into the academy like that. I mean, listen, it's, there's a little bit of luck and a ton of hard work that goes along with it. So I work day and night and my job is seasonal on some points, but I am always attached to emails. I, every step of the way, I was kind of getting into the career that I wanted to be in. So I'm a big, big advocate of being patient and taking the right opportunities versus jumping at the first opportunity because of a salary or because of, you know, if put it this way, if I wanted to be in the music business and somebody offered me an internship in film marketing, I probably wouldn't jump at it, even though you're getting in the entertainment business, because once you make that step, then you're one step closer to being a film marketer. Then you're one step closer to being a, you know, a, an executive at Paramount or Universal or Sony, and you're getting further and further away from where your ultimate heart is. I think you have to keep doubling down on the things you like at whatever opportunities presented to you. So when I was doing consulting, I realized I really did like the, the music part more than I like film and television. I really kind of enjoyed the musicians. I like kind of, I, I was creatively more excited by the timeframes that are like, 
for motion pictures, sometimes they can shoot and edit for two years. It's, it was a life cycle that was too long for me. So I, I kind of figured that out. Then at the next job, I started getting really engaged by the concept of live production. I liked the idea that we weren't doing 13 rounds of edits. We weren't constantly like looking at something and saying, well, let's find another camera angle and edit it into the final cut. I liked that you only had one chance to get it right, that there was a live audience, that there's energy about it. So every step of the way, I just kept kind of redirecting to get me to where I wanted to be, which was ultimately in live production. And I mentioned, you know, previously that my job changed since August of last year. And that's because basically I got promoted and now I run an entire division that includes, as you mentioned, marketing and artist relations and, um, and uh, not only production and events, but also our partnerships and sponsorships. So um, it's a little bit more on the executive level, a little one step away from the creative, but I still oversee telecast production and our production and events, just uh, more hands-on on telecast, less on the events these days. But ultimately, I, that's, I guess my best advice is work really hard and stay very attuned to what you're enjoying and always look five or 10 years ahead. So keep talking, keep changing to where you want to be. If you love something, your next move should be towards that direction, not away from it. Brandon, thank you so much. And thank you so much for coming to Leap and being a speaker so often and all your support. And uh, man, I am just in envy of everything you do. You're amazing. It was a pleasure talking to you and good luck to everybody out there. Wish you the Thank best you. of luck. All right, Dr. Bill, over and out. Take care. To learn more about the Leap Foundation, go to leapfoundation.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash leapfoundation or on Instagram at leapfoundation. Listen to the Meet the Mentor podcast with Dr. Bill Dorfman on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.